When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Richard, yes, maybe this is a really silly question, but how busy are you at the moment? I would consider myself to be very hard-pressed for time, partly because we've got a book out at the moment, so I've been on book talk. I do all sorts of interesting places doing that. Partly because we have the great pleasure of meeting and doing our rabbit hole detectives. Partly also because I've got box blight, and the box hedges in my garden have died, and so Ben and the garden, and the garden my gardener guy, he's doing all the work. So there's a lot happening. Plus, I'm writing book three in the series. So I consider myself to be quite busy. How about you, Charles? Well, I've kept box blight at bay, <laughs> but I have just finished writing a, a book that's taken me four or five years, and I'm doing this. You know, all of us have a, a you know how much there is after you've finished a book, and also the podcast and all sorts of things back at home. So, would it be fair to say that if somebody found a way to deliver all the day's news to you in a single five-minute source-curated read from the best of the world's media, would that be helpful? Do you mean? A curated source in an easily digestible form <laughs> of all the headline-making news in the world. Yes, yeah, so you don't have to go out and find it yourself, but you could just get it to you. Of would that be useful? I'd love it. If possible. Yes. Well, luckily, somebody's actually found a way of doing just uh -huh. that. <laughs> Do and it's tell. called The Knowledge. And The Knowledge is a free daily newsletter, and it makes the news manageable. Fill me up with knowledge. Where <laughs> so, would you find it? So you just have to sign up. It's very easy. You can sign up for free at theknowledge.com. Brought to you by John Connell, founder of The Week. And that gives you five minutes daily news. And that's it. The Knowledge makes news manageable. Holding Pocket. Welcome to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hi, Kat. Hello, Kat. So we are back in our old studio now. Yes, I know. It's rather nice, isn't it? Rather reassuring. Yes. I rather enjoyed our sojourn to the Viking lands of Wiltshire. It was yes. nice. It was good. It was Following the great, great army. Great yes. army. Yes. 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 We tried to pump we them down. foot soldiers in their footsteps. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I had a lovely time in Bath after we last met. 
It's a city you may know or not know, Kat, that has a significant Roman history. <laughs> Aquaesulis. Mm, I've heard something. You know what? I worked at that museum for about no. four years. Oh, did you? As a guide. So were the Vikings there too? If they were in Chippenham, did they bother to go to Bath? Was they it all did. over by then? Yes. There is actually a Viking sword in Bath found just outside the city walls. And in Sweden, I think there's a runestone commemorating somebody who died in Bath. Really? And was buried there. We've never found him, but there was a Viking who I died in really Bath. I really see a Viking thinking, I must pop down to the thermal bath today. <laughs> Why not? I don't know. It just doesn't seem very Viking to me. But what do I know? Nothing. Well, they do. I mean, so the Vikings were sort of famously had a bath every Saturday, unlike the Anglo-Saxons. Really? So they're what, apparently... Did the Anglo-Saxons not bother with that not side of things? Not quite so much, apparently. So there's this, there's this one account that that says that the, the local women much preferred the, the Vikings because they had a bath on a Saturday. I always think you look at wonderful sort of portraits of the civic life, of glittering social circles of the 18th century or something, and you think, I wonder what it smelled like. It must have been yeah. grim, wasn't it? I suppose you got used to it. It's like when they open a, a long-haul aircraft. Apparently the smell for the people on the ground is so terrible, but on the plane you get used to it. Well, I heard that the guy or the girl who opens the door gets paid extra because the noxious fumes that come out are so disgusting mm. that you have to bribe them, basically, to do it. <laughs> My goodness. I really noticed it when I started came to the Soviet Union, at the end of the Soviet Union, the end of the 80s, and you would arrive in Moscow and you'd just smell this kind of mildew smell that I realised I hadn't smelled since England in the 70s, and it was kind of clothes that weren't washed very often, mm. and detergents that weren't very effective. Because everyone else was nose-blind to it. But if you arrive from a nicer-smelling place, all of a sudden it just seems, wow. You were right. In the 70s, I went to a boarding school between the age of 8 and 13, and we only changed our clothes once a week. Really? And that was considered entirely normal. At the moment when you were most hormonally active. When things were hotting up. Blind. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Nice. Yes. That's a nice thought. To, um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> shall we go on to our topics for yes. this week? Are you all sort of ready and prepared with your notes, I'm Richard? So I'm pumped. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Actually, you've now won the last two episodes, Richard. So you're, I can see the confidence. I'm sitting on, on my laurels. Yeah, you are. Obviously, this is a prelude to total disaster, but hey. Which gives you more pleasure, winning two rabbit hole detectives in a row or being the number one fiction author? Rabbit hole detectives, of course. There <laughs> yes, we are. good. Because <laughs> my enemies are in the room. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll, and we're we'll not jealous you... at all. No. Good. Well, we're, you've both got books out, so we'll yeah. all be vaunting each other's literary successes, I'm sure, before. Well, Kat and I last time had a somebody bet, who we both know, bet on who was going to sell more and annoyingly i will be higher on the bestseller list and you were annoyingly yeah i, yeah. I did i won five pounds yeah. thank goodness none of us are touched by competitiveness or no, ego not not the slightest <laughs> which is very lucky anyway, anyway we will let you start you. just because you know you clearly need a bit more of a confidence boost today we're sort of hoping you trip <laughs> up that's all leave it with me <laughs> So your topic is apparently a personal hero of yours, St. Paul. Yeah, well, you know, hero, I would want to give a more nuanced picture that that might suggest because he is a very, very interestingly footballer. Here's a question for you, Kat, as an archaeologist, Charles, a historian. Who do you think has made the most significant contribution to Western history? I know it's a ridiculous, invidious question, but just suggest a name or two, perhaps. Jesus. Well, that's a very good one. I don't even, I can't even think of anything. Well, are you in gonna... your own personal list of people who you think are the most interesting, most significant people 
What about someone with a name like, I don't know, Iron Beard or, or, <laughs> or something? Okay, what about Knut? Well, he's a very interesting candidate, and we're yes. going to hear a bit more about him, aren't we? And you, well, you see, I would say the person, and, I'm not, and I think this is, you could make this argument quite powerfully, is St. Paul. I think without St. Paul, Christianity might have risen and then fizzled out as a rather eccentric Jewish sect in first century Palestine, as we might call it today, were it not for St. Paul, who managed to take this extraordinary doctrine and reconfigure it for the Gentile world. He took it outside the confines of the Jewish world and took it to the Gentile world and did that with such extraordinary intellectual power and vision and originality and creativity that it literally changed the world. If you think about it, you know, Jesus was crucified by the Romans somewhere around AD 33. 300 years later, the Roman emperor himself accepted it as an official religion of empire and accepted a baptism on his deathbed. Do you know why emperors accepted baptisms on their deathbed? Because there was a belief that after baptism you couldn't sin. So if you were a Roman emperor and you had to, you know, kind of eat the eyes of your enemies every Tuesday, you'd put off your baptism till the end. But anyway, why was he bothering to get baptized? Because of St. Paul. He began Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus, a city in what we now call Turkey, Cilicia, big important trading city. He was born probably around 4 BCE, so roughly a contemporary of Jesus, although he did not know Jesus personally. There's an interesting nuance to that to come. And he grew up as a Greek-speaking Jew, common in that part of the world. He was, I think, what we would call a white van man. He was a business operator, a tent maker, actually. Here's an interesting thing. When we think of Jesus and the apostles, and some would include Paul as the last of the apostles, we think of itinerant peasants, don't we, in rough tunics, wandering the highways and byways of Judea. No, they were white band men. They were small businessmen. They were carpenters. They were fishermen. They had hired hands. Interesting counterintuitive thought. And that was Paul. He was a Pharisee, and that was a kind of sect within Judaism that developed in the Second Temple period who were famously disputatious, paid enormously close attention to the close reading of Jewish scripture, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament as we call it. And they were also believed that the traditions that clustered around that were equal in importance. So they were very concerned that Jews should live correctly. And they also had a belief in the resurrection. And that was an entirely new thing. They were powerful. They were motivated. They were serious. They were activists. Saul, as he was then, was one of the most notable among them. And he uh, studied in the school of Gamaliel, who was the greatest Pharisaic scholar of the time. And he was obviously clearly brilliant, so much so that he was set to work persecuting Christians. So the first followers of Jesus were beginning to emerge in that part of the world around Jerusalem, and they were upsetting people in the synagogue because they were making claims which were unthinkable to Orthodox Jews of a Pharisaic turn of mind. At that stage, wasn't there a lot of... Um bad-mouthing of Christianity. It was seen as a sort of sexual sect, and, and they were trying to really bring it into disrepute, weren't they? Well, yes, and I think sort of the, what, what was happening with it in the first of the early church was that the ideas were beginning to get traction with, for example, there were households in which women and slaves would somehow find themselves on an equal footing through adherence to this new creed. If you so it was actually quite upsetting to the status quo. That was bad. So the Romans, this is a bit later on in the story, but the Romans were thinking this might be injurious to the social fabric and we want to keep that as it usually what Romans were like. They wanted to quiet life like everybody else. To the Jews, of course, it was heresy, and it threatened to pollute the purity of the doctrine and therefore the purity of the people. So they were very, very nervous about this. And Paul's job was to go to the synagogues, and he would then denounce people for beginning to preach these dangerous doctrines, for which the sentence would be usually a flogging of some kind or another. So it was really 
the early church often, I think when you see those madrasas in places like Afghanistan of sort of rather scary sort of places where people learn by rote, patrolled by rather strict teachers with, you know, whips and stuff. I think it was rather, the church was rather like that, in fact. Mm. And Paul was one of those people who was there to ensure that orthodoxy was upheld and to admonish people and indeed punish people. He was also instrumental, we know, in the execution of Stephen, the first martyr of the church, Stephen the deacon who was stoned to death. And then we have this amazing story, don't we, of this encounter this zealous Pharisee had on the road to Damascus, where he encountered the living Jesus, resurrected Jesus, he didn't know him in the course of his lifetime, who said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Scales fell from his eyes, which paradoxically made him blind. So he was blinded by seeing, this is an interesting idea, mm. mm -hmm. and then eventually he was healed and thereafter was a different person. He took a different name, Paul, which means small, actually. So having been great among the Pharisees, he was now small. He wasn't small for very long. He was clearly the smartest boy of the crop. And he soon got into a fight with the Jerusalem church, where the apostles of Jesus, Peter and so forth, led the Jerusalem church. And they hadn't quite grasped this idea that Paul had grasped, that the message of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, the promise of the resurrection was for the entire world not just for the Jews. So he was going there and saying, listen, I'm going to go on these missionary journeys. I'm going to take it out into the Roman world. And going, no, 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 none of that. If anybody wants to be part of our club, they must accept circumcision. They must accept our dietary laws and so on. And Paul had the vision to see that that really wasn't what it was about, that in this new revelation, Jew and Gentile were alike, male and female were alike, free and slave were alike. It was an enormously powerful idea. Did he have disciples of his own? Did he have a band who are identifiable? Well, yes, he had followers, for example, Onesimus, people like that. But he was an itinerant. He was, so he went, around, he went on three famous missionary journeys, taking this new gospel out into the world to evangelize really the Gentile world. You get the sense that he wasn't a very easy person. So there's a lovely account in, I think it's Acts of the Apostles, I can't remember which one, it's one of the um, New Testament texts, where he's in Ephesus and the elders go down with him to the harbour to wave him off. And you get the sense that they were just really, really <laughs> pleased that he was going. I wanted to make sure perhaps that he really was going. Yes. Because he was consumed with this new doctrine. And I think what's fascinating about him, he was one of the most powerful minds of his time. I would argue any time. He was hugely formed and rigorously disciplined and instructed in the doctrines of Phariseeism. And then this revelation happens, whatever that was, and it goes off like a bomb. And it's like this explosion in the greatest mind of his time. And all of a sudden, he comes out with these extraordinarily beautiful writings, letters, the epistles that were written to those first communities that he formed, normally to kind of stiffen their sinews or strengthen them in the face of opposition or persecution. But he just describes in the most extraordinary Greek, boom, 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 boom. And off he goes, doing his business, exciting people, annoying people, getting into fights with people, very disputatious, very argumentative. Ends up in Rome. And then there's this interesting thing where he's kind of sailing in and out of potentially mortal danger because the Roman authorities are beginning to think, well, what do we think about that? And he ends up getting beheaded, probably in the persecution of Nero around CE 64. Nero was horrible to Christians. He liked to pitch them, cover them in pitch and hang them from gibbets and then set fire to them to light the way mm. into Rome with burning Christians. Not a great way to go. No. Paul, of course, was a Roman citizen, so that he had a few more options over how he was dealt with. But eventually it fell to him to suffer the executioner's sword, and he was beheaded. Here's another interesting thing about him. He's one of the few people of that period in antiquity, we think we know what he looked like. Oh. 
Ooh. I mean, we don't know what Jesus looked like. No. Of course, conventional piety of the West has him as a sort of golden-haired white man with a simpering expression. Well, of course, he wouldn't look like that at all. He was no. a Palestinian Jew. We don't know what he did look like. But there are accounts, not quite contemporary accounts, but there are accounts very soon after the death of Paul in which he is described. And this is maybe counterintuitive, but, well, John Chrysostom, who was one of the great bishops of Constantinople, according to him, he looked a bit like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. I think. <laughs> so he was quite wizened like and he was crooked and he had a long nose and he was a bit florid. Mm. So in my mind, he did look like Mr. Burns from the Yes, season. That's an image, Not someone you'd think is particularly charismatic, but clearly had this extraordinary galvanizing effect on his followers and those with whom he disputed. How has he been received over the years? I mean, has there been a big change? I mean, recently, I suppose oh, yeah. many hundred years ago, how has he been sort of perceived... In I mean, general, Paul, perhaps, is that if you were looking for a revolution in the church, mm. then the chunks of the Bible you might most readily go to would be the Pauline epistles. For example, the Reformation. It was through a reading of Paul's epistle to the Romans, which is perhaps his most important work. Seven of the letters attributed to him, we believe, were actually by him or dictated by him, and that's the key one. This is the, the notion that um, justification and salvation comes through faith and scripture, not through the teaching of the church or the authority of bishops, for example. That's a very Pauline idea. There was a huge revolution in the 19th century, post-Reformation, obviously, when all of a sudden people started looking at the Bible critically as a literary text and started asking questions about who authored what and was that significant and was that important. In our own time, of course, Paul, being a Pharisaic Jew, being disputatious, concerned with the specific needs of communities, was often arguing in ways which we find very, very inimical to our contemporary values. For example, he's not great on women. He's very, very keen on celibacy. He's not great on anything which we would remotely describe as queer. So he's a problematic figure. But he remains this extraordinarily powerful thinker who goes off like a bomb. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's so captivating for me and also why he's so problematic, because you engage with that stuff and nothing's quite the same there. But it's the same, you know, you look at Aristotle, for instance, you know, his thoughts are generally brilliant, but terribly bad on women and on slavery. Yeah. So I'm not saying that's good or bad, but you can be a great mind and get things very wrong by our standards. By being of your time. Yes. And of course, even within that, then there is this extraordinary, these extraordinary hymns, hymn-like passages in which he talks about in Christ, there is no slave nor free, there is no male nor female, there is no Jew nor... What he meant by that, well, we can end... But you can clearly sense that even for him, there's this perception that in this new dispensation, all bets are off. Mm. And that's just been so hugely influential so what's interesting to me i mean so he he writes these letters he's the one who was on patmos wasn't he for ages yeah i went to patmos that is even now it's a very remote island off the greek coast i mean i remember getting a ferry there there's a ferry once a week if i remember rightly and i was stuck there for a week not realizing that was an option <laughs> but you couldn't get a more remote place so if you think of somebody who had that amount of influence but he sort of went into retreat Sort of hiding. I mean, he was also, he was shipwrecked, of course, on Malta. So he has these. But also, because his prestige was so high in the early church, people started to want to have a little bit of him. I think. Mm. So you know, he might have perhaps casually looked somewhere one day. That well, we'll have that. So yeah. Because you wanted to have the patronage, the protection, the prestige of this figure. It's like Elizabeth the First is. If she did sleep in every house she's meant to have done, she'd have had to spend two nights in one place and yeah. one in another. You know, it's impossible. Yeah. Mm, that's um, very interesting. And do you have a favourite fact? I do. That you can share. 
So Paul met his end, probably AD 64, CE 64, in the neuronic persecution, beheaded as befitted a Roman citizen, a little bit south of where is now the Vatican City in the site of the martyrdom of Peter. And uh, when he was beheaded, his head bounced three times, and on each bounce, a fountain of miraculous water sprang forth. Oh. San Paolo della Tre Fontani is the thing, but there's also an abbey there. They've built a Cistercian, sorry, a Trappist abbey there. So there are Trappist monks at the Abbey of the Three Fountains. They have an interesting job, and do you know what it is? They tend a little flock of fluffy white lambs. How appropriate that Paul, the great pastor, should be remembered in that way. But on St. Agnes Day, which is January the 21st, they take two of those fluffiest, whitest lambs to the Vatican, where the Pope blesses them, and they are then shorn, and the pallium, which is a sort of yoke which is given to an archbishop as a sign of the authority of the Pope, is woven from the wool of the little fluffy white lambs from the Abbey of the Three Fountains, which stands where St. Paul's severed head, that's one for you, Charles, bounced <laughs> three you. times. Well, that's so that. impressive, isn't it? That, that I love the Christian tales, if I can put it that way. And the fact that there's still a sort of semi-belief in those things today is very, I find it very, I think quaint's the word. But do you, as a much more devout Christian than me, Richard, do you believe anything happened apart from the three bouncing? I think it's real for the people who believe it. And I think it, I love that saying of Emily Dickinson, tell all the truth, but tell it slant, success in circuit lies. The deepest, most profoundest, most mysterious things of life if you try to tell them straight, you somehow deprive them of their power. Mm. So myths and legends and fancy stories and whatever, I think perhaps do a job that is necessary. Do I think Paul's head bounced three times in a spring of water? I've never seen anything like it myself, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> but I think that the tradition preserves the story, maybe yes. tells us something That's worth knowing. That's a lovely, yeah. it's, it's a wonderful it's story, yeah. Did not know much about it at all. Absolutely. So I think I'm going to go next this week. And I'm going to be talking about something that I actually only discovered recently. I didn't know about these at all, called commonplace books. And I just came across them sort of randomly on social media, as you do, because apparently they're having a bit of a resurgence in this sort of post-COVID world. And commonplace books are what's on the tin. So they're a place where you, you write and you put things in a common place. That's what the name comes from. So they're a little bit like journals, really, but they're a collection of information. So rather than being a sort of diary where you write down your thoughts and what you did, you gather information from what you've read, especially, and you put it together in one common place. And they go back a really long way. So there's sort of traditions back in Romans actually talking about these common places. And there are places, especially where you gather things to do with rhetoric. So there's lots of things that are particular sentences and sayings and things that you can use that are going to be useful for you put together in these common places. But the actual books themselves come really into use in the uh, 17th century in Europe. And I think it's got to do with also the increased information. So with the printing press and books being available, suddenly there's all this knowledge and people need to have a place of to gather them together. So the commonplace books uh, come in and they are especially a guide to reading. So you're reading something, you take a really important bit and you put it down in your book and then you annotate it. So you add your own thoughts to them. 
And they become uh, so, so popular that uh, people start to devise specific methods and they're being used in universities as teaching and all of that. And the person I was really interested in especially was John Locke, so the philosopher, because he was really, really keen on them. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. No. So he um, actually devised a method of organising them. And this is actually really ingenious because people had these. So you obviously now if you do this sort of thing on a computer, you can search for things, you can gather information really easily. If you have a notebook and you're trying to organise it and you keep on putting different things in them and then you want to refer back to them when you're writing your next novel, whatever it is, it's quite difficult. So you can do an index or something like that or a contents page. And people were trying to work out the best way of doing it. So they some would have a page per letter or you, they would divide them into topics or, or that sort of thing. But none of them are really very satisfactory. So he came up with his way where we had take the first two pages of the book, divide them into 25 sections, each for each letter, and divide each again into five. So you have the first letter of a word and then the, the five vowels after that. So if you suddenly find something on, say, Paul, because you're writing a little snippet about St. Paul in your book, that would go under P and A. So the first letter and then the first vowel. So if it was about Vikings, so it would be V and I. So you'd always go for the first letter and the first vowel. I never thought that that was someone's brilliant idea. I thought it just kind of happened, but of course it was yeah. someone's brilliant idea. So he came up with this as a special way. So you could just put anything in there and you'd put in the margin, you'd put that word. So if it was plant, it would be P and A. So you'd page 25 or whatever. It's so clever. It's a really, really clever mm. system of organising your notebook. So, And he actually wrote a book about this. Uh, he started doing it in the 1650s when he was studying at Oxford. And part of the reason was that he, he complained about his own memory. He didn't have a very good memory, so he had to put everything down. And uh, he wrote a book on his method, first published it in French, became so popular, and it was taken up. They were printing ready-made commonplace after Locke's method of making these indexes. And then I sort of fell down a huge big rabbit hole of what he was thinking. And one of the things that he argued for the commonplace books was he was against the idea of just memorising information, which was really, really popular. So as a sort of way of learning, having people having to memorise quotes, memorise these sayings. And so a lot of over you know, hundreds of years that had been a way of learning. You had to memorise these phrases. And mainly all the Greek and Latin texts. So yeah. That was the basis of education, which is really a very strange way of looking at it. Absolutely. And so part of his arguments were saying, well, actually, what you're really just doing is that you're learning to regurgitate these facts and these things that other people have said. If you take it and you put it down, write it down and then write comments on it, then you're thinking about that. And you're actually thinking of how you could use those facts rather than just memorising them. This is so exciting, Kat, because I'm thinking what that anticipates is a search engine. It's yes. like Google. Yes. Except it isn't. But you know what I mean? That's, mm. It's a way of thinking, isn't it? Which is that way of thinking. Yeah. yeah. And it's really, it's, it's thinking about how do you organise that information? And he's also written, he wrote quite a lot about, you know, the fact that actually organising your own mind and, and stopping yourself from being distracted is a really big problem. And I, I love that because we sort of think that that's something that we suffer with now because of having internet and social you, media. You're right though, Richard, because I mean, the thing I know about John Locke is his effect on education in the late 17th century. And he saw the future of Britain as being dependent on aristocratic and gentleman folk learning foreign languages and maths and science. And this does fit with your Google search engine. It's 
it's an intelligent mind rather than a repetitive one. And one yeah. that's making connections, right? Yeah. Yes. And then setting it up so you can see connections that otherwise you wouldn't see. Exactly. So, so that's the whole, so the commonplace book is a way of doing that. And so it's, it's letting you take all this information from different places, make those connections. And then that, exactly that organizing, that index is a way of then taking that a step further. And they became hugely popular into the 18th, 19th century as well in all sorts of different disciplines and all sorts of people are doing them. And it's really great because we've got so many of them preserved that actually we can you can go back and you can look at someone's interests and the topics. You know, what are they gathering? What are they collecting and putting together? Which I think is just great. And it's this idea that you take the reading and then transforming it into mm. something else. So I've bought a little notebook, so I'm going to make my own, I think. Do you know what? It might be said that the rabbit hole detectives belongs to that sort of tradition, doesn't it? Yes. And what's really interesting about that is, you know, I think sometimes people think that one should be highly focused and goal-oriented in the exploration of the mysteries of the world. My view very often is that it's often the stuff off to the side, the glancing encounter with something unexpected that might be the productive one. Yeah. Maybe that, but that's just reflecting my own biases. Well, can, actually, that, that when Kat was leading the dig on the Roman villa with us, she was very keen to get local school children to come along. And they are finding stuff because there's a lot of stuff. Kat was hoping that just one of them might have an interest in archaeology when they grow up from that yeah. moment, that connection of something different when they were very young. Yeah. And I think that's what education's about, really. What I love about this as well is this idea that that's okay. You know, yes. th these rabbit holes are okay, but you just gather them and then don't forget about them. Let us not forget Archilochus, poet of antiquity. <laughs> How could How you? could we? Because I didn't <laughs> yes, know about him, so I couldn't no. forget him. What did he say? He said, the fox knows one thing, but the hedgehog knows many things. And he said people were foxes or hedgehogs. You either know one thing oh. or you know many things. So maybe this is a manifesto for hedgehogs and a slap in the face of the fox. Maybe you can be both. Because I think of myself as a hedgehog, but you know, I like lots of all sorts of interesting things. But when I did my research, it was very focused. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, I'm a hedgehog trying to be a fox. I thought, hmm. I'm not very foxy, actually. Well, but you do do your research. I mean, when you were researching for one of your novels, a 1980s access to a big house. He wrote to me and asked, would I have had a, a remote gate in 1980s? You, well, do, you do want to get it right, don't you? Well, yeah, and it is fascinating. At what point did the gates on estates become automated? In other words, yes. at what point did you not need to have a person yeah. in a lodge house? And then what did you do with the lodge? Yes. And as I, my sense was, it was the end of the 80s and 90s when that began yeah. to be a thing. Yeah. So thank you very much for that useful plot point. <laughs> Excellent. I think Delighted our to be a disembodied voice has a comment. Archilochus actually said, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Oh, I've got the wrong way around. I'm always doing that, aren't I? So I'm actually <coughs> a fox, not a hedgehog. <laughs> I'm not a hedgehog who's not a fox. Thank you for correcting me. Aww. Humiliation is good for my soul. <laughs> <laughs> I'd think I'd of you more as a hedgehog, a though. Do you think more as a hedgehog? Yeah, 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 yeah maybe. Yeah, it's fine. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> What's the difference between a commonplace book and a book of hours? What is a book of hours? Did you come across that? Book of hours is a prayer book, oh. I think. So these, I, I was looking into this because it was that one that was discovered very recently, wasn't there? Yeah. It's a and breviary, essentially. Oh, it's I Still see. used today. Yeah. yeah. So there were collections of prayers. To be said at certain times of the day for the hours, which were the, the different yes. um, yeah. hours of prayer during the day. But they were often, those that were in secular hands, were often used kind of as sort of personal books into which you might just insert yeah. things of interest to you. You start collecting yeah. things, you know. And then there was yeah. a book of flowers. It was one of the World War II generals from the desert, oh. Wavell or Alkin, like or someone. 
he just throughout his life put favorite poems in a book and then published it and it was a huge seller because it was so beautifully thought out well the one i'm thinking of when i think commonplace the one i think of most of all was john julius norwich the writer yes. who every year for his friends used to do a thing called a christmas cracker and it was his commonplace book for the age of interesting things and then it was published and it was the randomness of it that was so he had an eye and an ear for stuff that was interesting but it was often so surprising and did you, did you ever used to get it in your stocking no i remember it being around though well, there we go i think my favorite fact actually was that there was a commonplace book uh, from 1598 was one of the very first places where shakespeare was referred to in print and oh. it was the commonplace book of someone called francis Mir. really and, i love yeah, that so that's that's a sort of other external reference yes so the first reference to shakespeare outside Shakespeare, if you do me. Yeah, so one of the first in print where somebody else talks about him. That's so interesting. It's a commonplace book. There we go. So that was the end of mine. And then that leaves us with one more, Charles. So if you want to get in there and convince the disembodied voice that you're going to be the winner this time to catch up with Richard, then... Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I, yes, so I'm doing secret codes and ciphers. and um, Yes, I was sent in by one of us listeners, exactly. I think. So it's so lovely to get these suggestions. I would not have thought of that myself. Now, I knew, I, obviously, we all know the a few of the great codes and ciphers and the World War II one in the Enigma Code, which I will get to. But I wanted to start really in the deep end with perhaps the greatest code cracking of all time, which is the, the Zimmerman telegram. Now, this is the First World War. So the very first thing the British did on the first day of the war was cut the cables of communication under the Atlantic between Germany and the other side of the Atlantic. And this put the Germans at a hell of a disadvantage, really, because all their cables had to go through Sweden or through the UK. And the Navy set up a, a room, Room 40, where they set about cracking these quite devilish German codes. And the Zimmermann telegram was this fascinating moment, beginning in 1917, where America, very reluctant to come into the war, in 1916 they had re-elected Woodrow Wilson on the basis that he would keep them out of the war. But um, things started to turn against the Germans, uh, the sinking of the Lusitania, a great transatlantic liner that was torpedoed. But the Zimmerman telegram brought in the Americans to World War I more than any other event because it was a cable from the German foreign minister, Arthur Zimmerman, to his man in Mexico, Heinrich von Eckhardt. And it was basically saying, Tell the Mexicans, if they enter the war, we will win it. And as a reward, we'll give them Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. Well, to the average American, this was such an affront that they got behind the anti-German movement. And very soon after the Zimmerman telegram was cracked, in room 40, they entered the war. Now, we obviously have had these codes for a very, very long time. The first ones were 4,000 years ago, Egyptian ones that we know. These were used probably to help mark a, a nobleman's grave without people understanding it unless they had the code. But what I love about our detective podcast is when we come back to things we've dealt with before. So now we've done whatever, 20 episodes, whatever it is. The Spartans in the 5th century BC produced the first military encryption that we know. And it was a device, a cylinder called a cytale, S-C-Y-T-A-L-E. Essentially, it was a cone that the sender had and the recipient had where you wrapped a parchment round leather and you wrote on it. They were exactly the same diameter, the cones, both ends. And if you wrote on the side 
through a leather cover, you came up with exactly the same code, both ends, but it had to be stretched on exactly the same size for you to be able to read it. And it's incredible that that's the first military. They were one of the great, as we've touched on before, one of the great military powers of their time. And another great dynasty, as it were, from the past is Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar had his own code, which was called the Caesar Shift. And essentially, it's very simple, but it lasted for hundreds of years. You decided on how many letters you in the alphabet you were going to move your code. So, for instance, you could say three letters to the right, and an A becomes a D, and across the whole alphabet. This is a very simple code, but it took a lot of cracking. You could have many guesses before you got the right thing. And although Caesar gets the credit for that and the naming rights, we know that the Greeks were doing something very similar in centuries before. There are basically different types of codes for military operations. There's the polyalphabet cipher. This is alphabetical cipher. This is a sort of strange way of dealing with a cryptifying device. It seemed to be absolutely impossible to get past. And the man who's most famous in this is a man called Visionaire. The Visionaire Square used a, a keyword whereby you then set your code. You had a keyword as your starter, and that gave you the code to the device you had. And we have, for instance, Thomas Jefferson still using this when he was president. He suggested to friends when they're writing to him that they use the Visionaire code. And it was unbroken for 300 years when it came out. Now, this is an archaeologist, Cat. I was so pleased to find an archaeologist involved in this. <laughs> Thank you. And he is the man who sort of cracks the code. He didn't realize how good he was. This man was called Major Friedrich Kasiski. He was a Prussian. And he managed, almost like a statistical attack, to break the Visionaire Code in 1863. And he published his sort of 95-page book on it, The Secret Writing and the Art of Deciphering. But because he didn't get much traction at the time, he became an archaeologist and <laughs> had a very happy but not very distinguished career in that world. But he is the man whose mathematical brain managed to crush a lot of these things. Charles, do you think, or Karen, do you think archaeologists particularly kind of optimised this? I was thinking, you know, obviously the Rosetta Stone. Mm. But I mean, trying to work out what a script that no one has any sort of understanding of yet you, the, the, it's the same sort of process and you bring to it the same techniques to try to figure out well if that's a repeated letter what's that likely to be i don't know how it works. well i think archaeologists but obviously i know this is a very obvious point but also linguists the man who really was the main decipherer of the rosetta stone was a, a chap called jean-francois champollion mm. and he was proficient not just in latin and greek but six ancient languages yeah. so when he saw it was three languages on the rosetta stone yeah that led to the deciphering of it, which was the tricky one, Cat. It was some so, hieroglyphics. Yeah, because it's in, th it's in three languages and one of the hieroglyphics and then it's Greek Coptic? and then some demotic. Demotic or something Not like that, yeah. Not cuneiform. Not cuneiform, <laughs> actually. <laughs> but, but what was so helpful in that is you had three parallel scripts that yeah. were saying the same thing in three languages, one of which was an unknown language. That is incredibly lucky, isn't it? You know, there are so well, many fine. different ways. Yeah, well, yeah. It's like, I think one of the things he did, because the, the pharaoh's names are within a cartouche, so they got a sort of marked out with a sort of circle around them. So that was one of his first clues. And so he used that as a sort of key to go, okay, and he recognised those in the Greek. And then went, okay, where do we go from there? But it is that sort of having lacking a certain bit of information and having that making the connections well, isn't you that wonder, don't you, is this a job for a fox or a hedgehog a fox <laughs> being 
Someone who knows many things, mm. and a hedgehog. Yes. Knows one big thing. Well, maybe foxy hedgehogs or hedgehog. I foxy. think it's a foxy talent, isn't it? Because you've got to come at it from various directions, not just roll up into a ball, I think. But also note those tiny differences which tell you a bigger story, but I don't know. Yes. I'd be hopeless. I believe, you know, that there are 700 signs in the hieroglyphs. You know, it's very, you're dealing with a lot of imagery. And we believe now that the Greeks and Romans couldn't understand hieroglyphics from Egypt. There was so much of their time and their culture. And I think it takes a, a foxy mind, if we're on it, to sort of go past the obvious and and to break a code like that. And you need to be so persistent, don't you? And you need to really persevere and just go, I don't get this, but I'm going to keep on trying again yeah. and again and again. And I think that's the key. Well, surely a lot of these code breakers, yeah. Charles, must have just worked on it for such a long time. Well, that's it. Now, this is the thing with the Enigma code, which, of course, now is the most famous probably in, in the world. So that was invented by a German just after World War I, and it developed through the 20s and 30s and became the standard issue for the German military. And it was considered impossible to break, the Germans thought, because they worked out it had 103 sextillion possible settings. Blimey. I don't know how many notes uh, noughts that is, but it's quite a lot. Alan Turing, obviously, is the most famous of the code breakers, but there were half a dozen of them who worked with him in Bletchley Park. But it was uh, Turing who by inventing the bomb, broke down the 103 sextillion into a quantifiable amount that could be attacked. He was a hedgehog. Yes, I Not suppose. Not a fox, a hedgehog. They broke the code in Bletchley in January 1940 and were sort of privy to the high command after that. At the same time, you have this impossible situation where you couldn't reveal your hand. So Winston Churchill was informed that Coventry, great industrial city in the Midlands, was going to be flattened by the Luftwaffe, he couldn't have people evacuate Coventry, so what he did instead was move in an enormous number of nursing units around Coventry so they could help with the, the bombing's results on the ground. Casualties were very light, actually, weren't they? There weren't many. Yeah, the cathedral, of course, is the great sort of commemoration of, of the German bombings from the war. Yeah, and, well, the, and, the, and the movement to rebuild the cathedral afterward to make a statement that what had uh, afflicted Europe twice in the 20th century would not happen again mm. until we undid that one too, but don't get me started on that. Um, <laughs> my mother remembers as a girl standing with her father in the front garden of their house in Kettering and seeing the red sky oh. over Coventry. And her father had reserved occupation, sort of regretting that he couldn't respond with fight, I think. To Can that. you imagine? Yeah. So... What's interesting about codes is how they intrigue the general mind. You know, you don't have to be a mathematician to be intrigued by this. So in Australia, and I'm aware we have quite a lot of Australian listeners, one of their great mysteries is this Somerton Man. Now, the Somerton Man was uh, discovered, this body, who has never really been identified, although I'll get back to that, was found dead against a seawall in 1948 with every single aspect of his identity removed. There were various things he still had. He had in his pocket a half-empty packet of juicy fruit chewing gum, and he had in his stomach a half-digested pasty. But at first he was just thought to be somebody who had committed suicide or just died suddenly. And then there was a greater mystery when they did a full autopsy. Some of his organs were very suspiciously enlarged, and it was clear that he had been given or had taken some poison. So it became an incredible cause celebre in the 1940s. And still to this day, if you mention it to Australians, they know this thing because there were various things that made him a mystery. In text in his pocket was a line that was W-R-G-O-A-B-A-B-D, 
Well, no one knows what that means. Lots of people have had a, a go at trying to interpret that. He's never been fully identified. His picture was spread around everywhere. And it actually wasn't until quite recently, in fact, last year in, in July, that a DNA analysis was done. And he actually, after all this, he just turned out to be Carl Webb, an electrical engineer born in Melbourne in 1905. But people thought it was a spy. It must be a dastardly deed because the code, the lack of identity, everything looked like this was the greatest mystery of all time. But people now think that was just probably a series of letters to remind him of the direction to where he was going. Hmm. My Wi-Fi code, actually. But, in my- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they do really intrigue people, don't they? Yes. It's like that. And there's something in our minds about trying to be the one to crack it. It's like crosswords and code words, and it's so popular. Well, actually, you know, Richard will certainly remember, and I'm, I'm not being patronising, I can't remember if you would, but there was a book, Masquerade. In, yes, in the 70s or 80s, and that had a code in it Somewhere in this very beautifully illustrated book was a piece of jewellery with the animal a hair on uh, involved. And that book sold a million copies because people were going all over the places. And angry landowners put up signs saying, do not dig here. Everyone was digging everywhere. It was eventually found, all rather suspicious, the eventual finding. People are rather unhappy about it, probably out of jealousy. Who knows? But, you know. Amptill in Bedfordshire. It was absolutely. I mean, goodness, how do you know that? Well, That's incredible. I was fascinated by it. And I wanted to find the golden hair myself, but not have to do any of the work, obviously. How did you know that? That's just really unfair. Um, <laughs> you should use point for that, actually. Useless. <laughs> Useless, but very intriguing. I mean, there are many places more glamorous and memorable, maybe, than Amptill in Bedfordshire. But... The Tudors, Charles. Yes. They were great cryptographers, weren't they? They, they were, and the Stuarts. So Charles I did endless correspondence. He used a, a royal cipher in, in the Civil War, some which hasn't been cracked. In fact, numbers for names. Well, you sort of would have to have the list, wouldn't you? Because it doesn't make sense otherwise. Charles I, seen as a sort of martyr king, but was left by his wife. She went back to her native France for many years. And we have cracked his love letters to his mistress, a woman called Jane Horwood. I'd say quite strong language, some of the code. But, you know, he would never have expected us to break that and then know his inner romantic life. Charles, 21 zeros in a sextillion. Gosh. Richard, you mentioned uh, Coventry and the Coventry Blitz. The official death toll from that night was 554, although the real figure obviously could have been much higher with 863 badly injured. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I thought it was much lower than that. My bad. And 393 sustaining lesser injuries. And Masquerade Kit Williams was the author. And 1979, the book was published. And do you have a favourite fact on this I topic? do. I, this sort of thing really scares me because I have a totally non-scientific mind. And I do think that if there are other life sources out there best left alone because they might come and deal with us. But in the 70s, in 1972 and 73, two plaques were sent out into space, the Pioneer plaques. NASA put codes on the side communicating to any forces out there that were clever enough to crack the code where exactly we are in the galaxy, what we look like, what we know, all of this information, which I'd have thought was top secret, (laughs) (laughs) sort of pointing the way to an invasion. And they are still out there. The last time that Pioneer 10, one of the vehicles, was heard from, it was over 7 billion miles away, transmitting this um, invitation to come and visit Earth. It's written in various ways, in a sort of gold, adenized aluminium, telling people, well, the Earth is this way, do come and visit. 
Not a good idea, no. in my view. I also love the idea. This, I have this image in my mind of little aliens trying to crack this code. Yes. <laughs> Just going, it's true. It's it their wordle, yes, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> love sound, that. They, they did do Brian that. Willie Nelson and Bach and the Beatles got on, I yeah. think. Not no. the communards? Well, I think we missed that, that spaceship, <laughs> I'm afraid. Never God knows what they'd have made of us. <laughs> yes. That. that would be fun. Thank you for that, Charles. And there's only one thing left to do, which well, is can to... I, well, can I just I know say, you're always, you're before, always trying to that, right, influence. It is not, you know, everyone makes mistakes, okay, and foxes and hedgehogs are often <laughs> mistaken for each mm. other. I just want to put that into the court of judgment. Yeah, I'm not, mm. I'm not sure that's really And as Saul might have said to the hedgehog, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. So bloody true. <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> so, do we have a judgment this week? Our we disappointed do. voice deciding who the winner is. Uh, it's a hat trick for our own saint, Saint Richard. Oh my goodness. <sighs> no. Why are you being so nice to me? It was very interesting. Thank you. It was delivered beautifully. I'm well, sorry. you're too it's kind. It's always very difficult, but... Kids out there... Yeah. Even people on the Rebel Conceptors can mix up foxes and hedgehogs sometimes, but it doesn't mean that you can't <laughs> walk off with a On a winner. This is an encouraging message we're sending out there. To people. Is it? It's true. Climb every mountain, ford every stream. Also, you do take tricky subjects, you know, various flowers and now a yeah. Christian saint. Is there tricky subjects? But it should be his special knowledge, though. So it is a bit oh, of a kind of yes. unfair yeah, one, I, mean, I would say. I I do would know. say. He is to me what Vikings are to you. Yeah. Or who's I your favourite Viking? I know it's a silly question, but if you had one, Harold Bluetooth. Such so a good name. One, Such a good is, name. And the one that Bluetooth technology is named after. Did he fall off a bike as a kid? So. <laughs> <laughs> Probably did have Bluetooth. But you know the little symbol on your phone? Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's the runes. Oh, oh it's HB from Harold Bluetooth. So a little code. They're codes. And Charles, yes. who's your favourite historian? Invidious question. Favourite historian? Well, I. Whew, I don't know that I really have one. I will say the Bluetooth fact might be the best individual fact that we've had during 20 years. Thank you very much, yes. disembodied voice. So a special Appreciate prize for that. Cat, for getting one I, rune. Two great, runes, yeah. It's a great fact. It knowledge. is. Yeah. I had no idea. Well, there we go. So all our listeners now know. And there's your rune on your phone every time you... Yes, every time you press that symbol or see it, Bluetooth... Harold Bluetooth, because, I'm going to have to do a follow-up now, it's because he's credited yeah. with gathering Denmark into one country. So he was uniting the kingdom into one. And so Bluetooth technology is bringing people together. And that's why it's called that. If Would you say Harold Bluetooth was a fox or a hedgehog? <laughs> I think he's also a bit of both, surely. I mean, yeah. he's quite a versatile person. Very, very successful. Well, I like the sound of him. So I think that... Brings us to the end of this episode. But before we go, we have to decide on our topics for next week to go back and fall into rabbit holes. Richard. Yes. Next week, you're going to be talking to us about black tie. <laughs> and Charles, jet lag for you, please. Perfect. And I'm going to be talking about dogs with jobs. <laughs> so I think that's it for us from this week. Thank you as always, to everyone out there for listening. If you did like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review because it helps other people find us when they're searching for something to listen to on their podcast apps. 
You can also suggest some rabbit holes for us to fall down in future episodes by sending us an email, rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who's done that so far. We've really enjoyed researching mm. some of those topics that have come in. We've had so many and also some lovely comments from our listeners, which we absolutely love. And this week we had one from the furthest point away yet from Rob in Windang, New South Wales, mm. apparently. Each week also, you can find out more about our topics in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column in the Daily Telegraph, discussing a few of our favourite facts. To finish off, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, haste makes waste, so I rarely hurry. Very sensible. Sounds a good plan. Absolutely. Goodbye from the Rabbit Hole Detectives. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.